Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Merry Christmas to everyone out there. Joining me today to talk about all the best moments from 2016 in American sport. The Guardian's Les Carpenter. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. First of all, Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you got everything you asked for. Almost time to say goodbye to 2016 and what a year of sport it's been. And we've had the NBA Finals and the World Series. They both went seven games. Cleveland won its first major championship since 1964 when the Cavaliers overcame a 3-1 deficit to defeat the Golden State Warriors. And the Chicago Cubs lifted their first World Series title since 1908. Peyton Manning, got to go back to February now. Peyton Manning bowed out of the NFL with his second Super Bowl championship. I know it's not American, but Leicester City won the Premier League as 5,000 to 1 outsiders. The Rio Olympics hosted some of the greatest athletes to ever live. And tragically, we lost the greatest Muhammad Ali, whose legacy will never leave sporting circles. Joining us today, a man who's covered so much of the 2016 sporting calendar, the Guardian's Les Carpenter, who's been to most of the events that I mentioned above. Just before we get to Les, I wanted to talk to you about our sponsors over at redzonesports.com. A final Christmas gift for everyone out there. The US Sports Podcast is sponsored by redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports, as well as the best odds on US sports, money can't buy prize promotions, and their very own cheerleading squad. You can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. That's USSP. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. That's again redzonesports.com and register top right of the corner. Enter deposit code USSP and double your stake money. So, Les Carpenter of The Guardian. We're going to talk sport in 2016. Let's get to it. Les, thanks for joining us. I guess I would ask you first what your favourite sporting event this year was, and we can start there and work our way down the list. Oh, wow. I would have to say, um, gosh, you put me on the spot there. I, I suppose Game 7 of the World Series, uh, because of what it was, because the Cubs, after you know so many years, over 100, of not you know, winning the World Series, I, I would say that probably has to be the start. Also being in Cleveland, when the uh, Cleveland Indians themselves had not won since 1948, I, I just think there was so much that went into that night. Uh, it was such a real night, uh, so many different things, a, a rain delay in the, you know, in the ninth inning, uh, you know, sort of a, a soaked ballpark uh, well after midnight when the, when the World Series was finally won. I, I think that probably will stay in my mind as one of the, perhaps my favorite sporting events for years uh, to come when I look back because it just, it, it, it was such a unique, outrageous, surreal, crazy experience. I, I just don't think I, I'll probably see something like that anytime very soon. So when the Indians went 3-1 up, what were you saying to your editors? What were, what did you think was going to happen? Well, I, and I was only covering part of that World Series. We had uh, another writer in Chicago, and the last two games were going to Cleveland, 
And I live in Washington, D.C., and I, I said, you know, I, I, I'm just going to drive up there. I'm just, uh, And I like doing it. Cleveland's only about six hours from my home. Uh, and I just I just drove up there on Halloween night, got there the next uh, – kind of stayed in Pittsburgh the, the, in between and went there the next morning uh, for game six. And what was very interesting, I had been in Cleveland for the NBA Finals a few months before, and it was very much a similar kind of thing. It was very festive. It was really warm, too. Very strange for November 1st. It was, uh, I want to say, like about 75 degrees. Uh, it, just, it was like a summer day, and it was just packed with Cleveland baseball fans. And people just were very, very excited, uh, even though they had lost, uh, I think, game five, so it was only a 3-2 lead. I think there was still a sense that the Indians were going to finally do this and it was going to be what a wonderful moment for Cleveland, what a wonderful year for Cleveland. And then, the, you know, came that loss in game six. And the next day is one of the strangest things. The same time of day, the same kind of weather, it was a beautiful day, game seven, there was nobody on the streets. Cleveland, downtown Cleveland was empty. There were no Cleveland baseball fans. Uh, there was a, a number of people who had come from Chicago you know, winter Cubs jerseys and in some of these little bar districts downtown. But it was one of the strangest things I could think of. Here you are, perhaps one of the biggest baseball games Cleveland's had in, you know, in half a, half a century, and nobody's there. <laughs> uh, and, and the game was like that, too. I, 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 you know, the lines outside the ballpark where you were just a few little Cub fans and nothing. Uh, you know, the crowd inside the stadium, I think it holds about 40,000 uh, since they've redone the stadium. I want to say that probably 15,000 of those were Cubs fans who obviously paid enormous uh, top dollar to be there. Uh, it, it was very, very, very odd feeling all through that night, uh, right up until Rajai Davis hit that home run uh, in the ninth inning that, that, that tied the game for Cleveland off of, uh, off of Chapman. And I, I don't think I've ever seen a place explode like that ballpark did that night. And I, I, I even went back to my phone was looking at some pictures uh, just the other day. I mean, I looked down. It, it was like a giant mosh pit at a concert or, or as if there had been an enormous fight in the stands. I mean, literally, guys were ripping their shirts off and jumping up and down on top of each other. You know, all night, these very silent Cleveland fans finally just erupted. And I, 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 the roar was like something I, I'd never heard. And I've been in a ton of stadiums when big moments happen. Uh, it, it was such a, an outrageous experience. I think there was such a feeling, too, that, you know, the Indians were going to come out of nowhere and win this game and win this World Series. You know, and then came the rain and, and this odd fact you have a rain delay in the middle of all this drama. And then the rain goes away and they clean up the field really fast. It was the shortest rain delay I've ever been in. And, and then, you know, the Indians just fall apart and, uh, you know, and then the Cubs win. And then the Cubs are celebrating and pouring rain. And, you know, it's uh, it just the whole two or three days was just such a strange experience. Uh, I, I, you know, mixed with the fact that the, the Cubs were, were making history here and, and how outrageous was that? The, the whole thing uh, just kind of almost defies words. It was, uh, it was such a, such an overwhelming experience. What did you take from the Cubs fans? You must have spoken to quite a few of them. What did you take from them? Like the, them waiting for so many time, so many years to oh, win. Oh, yeah, a few of them I, I spoke to. Um, you, you know, it's kind of busy riding through the game, so it wasn't like I could wander the stands. Um, you know, I think one of the problems when you have an event like that 
is that the fans in the stands, because the ticket prices won, were so high to begin with, and then you have the the enormous markup on on the on the resale market, and uh, you know their tickets were going over ten thousand dollars. I think that people at Cubs fans were paying, maybe even more. Uh, I don't think that you're necessarily going to get that, die, you know, lifelong dying Cubs fan there. You're going to get the person with a whole lot of money who's got the, you know, the the ability to be there. Uh, sure, some of those people were long dying fans themselves, but it was not the same as if you just had that sort of, you know, free reaction on the streets that we saw after they uh, after the Cubs beat the Dodgers to go to the World Series. Uh, you know, you just didn't have any of that. I think in the stands, and and I and I look back at those pictures. It's funny. I, uh, literally, just a couple of days ago, and I'm looking at. I, I kind of saw my phone, so I kind of you know sort of taking my fingers and, and pinching the, the the pictures wide to kind of take a zoom of them. And I'm looking at these fans below me, and they're hugging, and yet I don't think they know what to do. <laughs> That's what probably struck me the most. It's all that your whole life as as a baseball fan has been built around the idea of your the long-suffering Cubs fan, your team never wins for you. You know that's that's your identity, and suddenly you're the you're the champion. What do you do? And I think Boston fans went through this after the Red Sox won, and and you know I think there sort of becomes a, a bit of a letdown. You kind of well now what? Now what do we do? Will the Cubs and, be perceived uh, differently now? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean the Cubs now are the are the evil empire. I mean they're the they're the ones now that, that, that can go out and sign the big free agents. And, you know, the money's there. They, they have a really, really good core for several years, I think, young players. Uh, yeah, I think the Cubs will very quickly be the team that everybody else hates. But I'll always remember the year after the Red Sox won uh, in 2004. So it would be 2005. It was early in the 2005 season. I had just moved to Washington where I live now, and I went to uh, to see them in, in uh, Baltimore. I was working at the Washington Post at the time, and I was there to do a story. So I go into the uh, – I'm standing on the field, actually, during batting practice, and the gates open. And this is in Baltimore, mind you. This is the Orioles Stadium, Camden Yards. The gates open, and I look up in the stands, and it's as if you see maybe in a horror film, you just see blood pouring down, you know – sidewalks or elevators or something down every aisle in that stadium on the lower level to get closer to the field and the Red Sox dugout was it was just a sea of red jerseys and it looked I it almost like I, the image is, is burned in my mind it looked like blood pouring down the uh, down the aisles because there's all these Red Sox fans all these now the 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 front running Red Sox fans they love the Red Sox and even if they only just picked up the Red Sox the year before because they were champions. They loved the story. They decided they were Red Sox fans. And they're all just pouring through the stands to get down to the field to watch batting practice. And there were thousands of them. I, I you know, I remember during the games, there probably was probably 10,000 Red Sox fans in the ballpark that day. And the Orioles fans just couldn't stand them. And I, I think that's what the Cubs fans will now become everywhere they go and what the Cubs will be to everybody kind of going forward here. I, I think they will be the team that nobody wants to like. Last couple on the World Series. Was this the greatest Game 7 in history in this sport? Oh, I don't know. There's been other Game 7s just off the top of my head. Uh, I think the Game 7 91 was really good. Uh, I feel, I, I mean, you know, Bill Mazeroski in 1960 with a walk-off home run. Uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates to beat the Yankees, I, I no. You think the I, I significance don't. of these two franchises and how long they've had to wait 
Yeah, and it's a significant story for those franchises. I mean, for the Cubs, obviously, the 108 year, you're waiting, 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 and now you finally won a World Series. And for the Indians, it's yet another one that you didn't get. You know, <laughs> you were up three one. You were going to. This was it. This was the year of Cleveland. And it's just got. It just had to be an enormous punch in the stomach. So yeah, it magnifies everything, and it's very much a piece of the lore of both of those franchises. I think there was a little bit of karma though with LeBron James on Halloween when he was dawning the three one in his band, and then the Indians went and blew a three one lead. But well, the most important question I want to ask you is who would you rather go for a beer with, Terry Francona or Joe Madden? <laughs> That's a great question because they both are a lot of fun. Uh, you spoke to them both, right, during this during the series. So yeah, who did you who yeah, did you like and more? Both, and you know what? One of my favorite moments during the World Series was Terry Francona after Game Six. And, and if you remember, that was just a trampling. I mean, it was a humiliating loss for the Indians. Uh, and you know, you come to the ballpark thinking maybe this is the night you're going to win again, and then it you know it doesn't happen. And so in the tunnel outside uh, the, the clubhouse, so in every stadium, when you, uh, there, there will be a, there's a big tunnel under the stands that kind of it, it runs the length of the stands, and you know, that's where you get into the clubhouses. That's where you can get into some of those lower suites, and it's just basically a busy place. There's little carts going around. There's also fans from some of the, the fancier seating sections come in and out through those tunnels. And at a big event like a World Series, they always take the manager of the team and take them to what they call an interview room. Uh, the interview room, is in, in this case in Cleveland, was down the right field line, uh, probably you know, uh, you know, a few hundred feet from the Indians' clubhouse. Walking back to there through a crowded, you know, after a World Series game, there's always lots and lots of people. They put extra security to check everybody's badges. Every, every, every person who had a, had a credential had a badge that somebody would sit and take a little, uh, a security guard would take a little machine and kind of and kind of beep in. So as everybody's coming back through, I'm, I'm after the Indian, after Frank Conner's press conference, I, I'm walking behind him just because I kind of want to see how people react to him, how he's reacting. I'm just sort of walking right, literally just a couple feet behind him. And they get to that low gate area where the, the woman is standing with the, uh, with the beeping device. And here he is in his Indian's uniform. I mean, it's very obvious. He's the manager of the Indian in a team uniform. And the woman is sitting there going, uh, uh, where's his badge? Um, sorry, your badge. You can't, you can't come in. He's not going to let Terry Francona go down the hallway to his, to his clubhouse. He's serious. And I, I just, when you think of all the little things that happen in these events and the stuff that you see on television, there's all these great little moments behind the scenes. And that's the one that's always going to stick in my mind after, uh, after that that. That second Cleveland loss. So when you ask if there's someone I'd love to have a beer, I thought Frank Kona handled that beautifully for a moment, and then he got annoyed. Uh, so at that point, it's kind of like, come on, seriously, I'm very Frank Kona, let's go. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. There's a great video. They always play it on Intentional Talk. Terry Francona doing sit-ups on the field in Cleveland with his shirt off and his baseball pants on. It's really a sight to behold if you ever get to see that. And his his bold head just shining in the sunlight. It's really nice. Um, so another sport that has boomed in 2016 and probably boomed a lot time before that, but UFC, you've been all over it this year. Um, you wrote a piece about Conor McGregor that I read today after winning UFC 205. You said he's turned UFC into his own little game in which he makes the rules and picks the prizes. First of all, I'm really intrigued. Do you like Conor McGregor? Well, I, 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 that's, that's a loaded question because I've actually never 
had a you know a, a personal intimate one on one conversation with him. Uh, I love watching him fight. I love seeing him in these public moments. I don't know what he would be like to sit and talk to and be just together like we are right now. I, I have a feeling he probably would be very interesting. He's incredibly bright. Uh, those who have some spent some time with him say, you know, you would absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Uh, I, I, you know, I find him one of, if perhaps, probably one of the five most compelling figures in sports right now. Uh, he he has a, a wonderful mind. You can tell that. Uh, he has a searing wit, which I think it, you know is, is is missing in so many athletes, and coaches, and things today. Uh, he could certainly back it up uh, in in the uh, in the I guess the octagon, as we like to say now in the sport. Um, it just he 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 gets it. And he can actually think a move ahead of all the people in the organization that he is working for in, in terms of the USC. Uh, so, yeah, and all, for all those reasons, I like it. What I have not liked is, you know, kind of recent months as I feel like his star has gotten bigger and he's kind of been able to see the impact he's had on people. I feel like he's turned himself into a little bit of a sideshow. I think he's tried so hard to make himself the show that he's overdoing it. Uh, and before that, that last uh, fight in Madison Square Garden, he put on a – it was almost like a world wrestling sort of uh, pre-match press conference a couple days before in which he actually had a chair and he was going to hit his opponent of Yalbrez. But it's like, you know, the, it, had, it had gone too far. After that fight, he was back to kind of being the introspective, clever, yeah, sort of witty uh, Conor McGregor, and that's the person that I that I love, and I think a lot of fans have fallen in love with. I, I mean, it's it's a totally different sport, it's a totally different social genre in many ways. I don't even want to make a comparison to it, but there is a little bit of like an Ali in him that he can make himself a little bit bigger than than life, and he's got a uh, and he's he's got the ability to to sort of have everybody hang on him, and so far he's been able to back it up uh, with his fighting. Uh, I, I don't want to make that comparison too deep because all these stood for so many more things that I don't know that McGregor won't have the ability to stand for. Uh, but I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, he he will be, again, a very compelling figure in this next year uh, and maybe for the next several years to come. And for all those reasons, I enjoy him a lot. It was sold UFC for reportedly $4 million uh, this summer. Um, does Conor McGregor need UFC more than the UFC need him? And and where's the ceiling for this sport? Do you think they both need each other? Because I don't think uh, I, I know McGregor makes a lot of talk about oh, I want to fight someone like me, whether I want to do this, I want to do that. I, uh, you know, maybe he has an acting career ahead of him. There, there seems to be a you know a, a thought that he's going to be in Game of Thrones. I I I think ultimately yes, he needs the UFC. And the UFC absolutely desperately needs him and Ronda Rousey, who's finally going to come back and fight on uh, December 30th. They, they they need their stars more than ever because uh, you know they're going to be selling pay-per-views. I mean, they, you know, they have a they have an organization to pay for. And there's a lot of clouds ahead for the UFC. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., Congress is going to start looking into regulating the organization. And for the longest time, the UFC has been able to kind of succeed financially and I think in popularity by controlling their athletes. Uh, in other words, you get paid very little to fight that organization. Uh, a lot of the uh, you, you, the rights, you know, that the guys have are limited. 
Uh, you know, it's not like the, these fighters can go out and market themselves very well. They, they sort of are owned by that organization. Uh, and the matchups, I think the, perhaps the biggest reason the UFC has been able to succeed is that Dana White and a, a small group of people within the top at the UFC are able to go and say, you know, well, Conor McGregor is the most interesting fighter. We're going to throw him against this guy, even though maybe te- technically someone else should have the shot at that fight. Uh, there is something here in the U.S., uh, you know, a law that's called the Ali Act uh, that regulates boxing, and it requires that all, uh, you know, all, all boxers have to be in a ranking system that's done independently of all these, you know, alphabet soup of, of boxing uh, organizations out there. And so when you have a title fight, it's because there's an independent ranking that says this person's one and this person's two. Uh, the UFC is probably going to have to fall under that regulation if this law is passed. And it's a Republican congressman from Oklahoma who used to be a fighter himself that is pushing for this. Uh, and I think that the uh, you know the Republican House, Republican Congress, and Republican president, despite the fact that this president has a friendship with Dana White, uh, I, I think that's very likely that the Ali Act could get passed. I think it's one of those things that, you're saying, well, let's take some regulation of boxing and extend it to the USC. I don't think many people are going to say that's a bad idea in Congress. So, uh, you know, there's some things that the USC is going to have to face coming forward. Obviously, the new owners know this, and uh, you know, this is this is not this is not any great secret. Uh, but I think Conor McGregor then and Ronda Rousey, and you know, any other stars. I, I think there's a very fat, interesting rising star on the female side, Cyborg. Uh, that are, you know, maybe you know, these are going to be the, the athletes that even more are going to have to carry that league going forward. There was a meeting at The Guardian uh, earlier this year about the coverage of UFC and the potential complications and difficulties with reporting on it, uh, all the sensitivity around how dangerous it is and everything else. If you were in that meeting and you know what you know now, what would you like to say? Yeah, I was not part of any of that. Um, so some of it, I, you know, I, I just I heard about secondhand. Um, you know, I, I think there's some concerns uh, that people have in watching uh, any MMA fighting. Uh, it looks very violent to people. Uh, some of it is. Uh, I, I, you know, it was hard for me. I, I'm new to the sport. I only, I only really picked it up last year. Uh, you know, it's hard to sit there at a match and, and watch uh, somebody lying on the ground while somebody beats their face in, uh, and there's blood everywhere. I, I, you know, it's, it's a little different than boxing. Uh, that said, I don't know that it's any worse than boxing. I don't know that it's any worse than American football, which, you know, I, I think a lot of us who cover American football kind of have a little bit of a pit in our stomach now that we understand head trauma and, and quite frankly, other physical ailments that, that come to players, the pain, joint pain later in life. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, that you get playing American football. I, I don't know where the where the UFC and MMA fall into that. I don't know where this kind of fighting, uh, if that's any worse than boxing, if it's any worse than, uh, than, than American football. I, I think, again, my biggest concern with the UFC remains this idea of fighter pay and fighter freedom and rights. Uh, and I and I have a feeling that, that, that that's going to be addressed in the next couple of years. Uh, I find the fighters themselves actually quite interesting. Uh, I know there's probably a perception out there that there's a bunch of idiots running around beating each other's heads in. These are incredibly bright people. Uh, Conor McGregor may be a little more clever at marketing himself, but there are some really, really interesting people 
they have a lot of interesting things to say and, and, and are just fun to talk to. And I think a lot of that comes from the type of disciplines that are involved. It's not just boxing, where, and, and, and I love boxing. Boxing is hitting and, you know, and the movements that go with it. I mean, this is a whole series of martial arts, you know, disciplines that are involved too. And there's, you know, sort of a, you know, there, there's a certain depth that comes with having to learn these. Uh, and so I, you know, I think I would probably say all of those things. Uh, I, I like the sport. I like the sport a lot. Uh, but there are some some things that, that concern me and I think concern a lot of people. Going back to August and the Olympics in Rio, especially in, we'll, we'll talk, we'll stick with the United States, of course. Um, was it remembered more for off the sports field or on the sports field? It's a really good question. Uh, I think both. And that's why I like this Olympics so much. I, I've done four, three winter games. and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, three summer games. The last, the last three summer games and I did the term Winter Olympics. Each one to me had its own kind of uh, kind of depth and, and, and place in history. I thought I would never see something as meaningful as the, as the Beijing Olympics for all the things that were involved both in competition and externally being in China at, at that moment. I think Rio may have come closer or even surpassed that. Uh, the the in-competition feats were incredible, uh, especially if we're just looking at the American side, uh, you know, especially in swimming and in gymnastics, female gymnastics. Uh, but the external, the, the, the social uh, implications of this Olympics were very different. It, uh, you know, a running theme this year, certainly here in the States, has been athlete activism. And I, you know, I, you could almost maybe pinpoint it back to the University of Missouri football team last fall, and certainly all running through Colin Kaepernick this year. But I, I think that really came into vogue in this Olympics. I think we really saw that, uh, you know. But also some of the behavior, the Ryan Lochte stuff, will be remembered uh, for a long time too. And I think, uh, you, you know, I was uh, in preparation for talking today. I, I went back and some of the stories I'd forgotten I'd written this right at the very, very start of the Olympics. Uh, I've, I've kind of been able to track down a story through the USOC, and I wrote it that the USOC was training its athletes before they came to the Olympics to to behave, to sort of please put on a good show here, please please wow. don't do anything disrespectful, don't say anything about Rio, don't complain. If you remember, a lot of the athletes in other countries were going around, and uh, you know the Australian delegation was 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 terribly upset about their housing. And, some of the other places were making comments about Rio and Brazil, and the USOC was begging its athletes. I, I think in part, we drew it to Trump, uh, but just this idea that I think a lot of people had a really bad feeling about America, given what was going on in our election, that I think uh, a, a lot of folks were saying, you know, maybe the athletes could be the, the good thing about America. So they knew that Rio Ironic. would be a challenge. Well, they knew it would be a challenge, but I think too it was sort of that thing of like the world hates America right now. Let's let's try to let's try to be one thing the world doesn't hate. I mean, literally, somebody told me that. Uh, <laughs> it was the genesis behind it. Uh, and and <laughs> quite frankly, you know, for the most part, the Americans are one. I, Michael Phelps was fabulous. I mean, Michael Phelps has been a kind of a moody presence through most of his Olympic life, and this was he was a mature, grounded. Happy Michael Phelps. He was he was a delight to be around. I mean, there were so many things that the Americans did well. The, even the Americans that lost lost with grace. It was great. And then comes Lochte, and it's just like the absolute worst of America 
just piles up on everybody. And, and it's just, you, you think all that work that was done to try and kind of put a good face going forward is all literally torn apart by one swimmer. Uh, Who would you defend so, in that uh, situation? I've, I heard different reports in terms of hosts in the state saying that we have to be careful about what we say about the athletes, but also people defending Rio as a city and everything else. Where did you stand with that? With Lochte or with... Uh, with Lochte, with yeah. The whole... Oh, I, you know, it's, it, 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 it's behavior you didn't need. I think when you're an athlete in that position... Uh, regardless of whether you think that you're, you know, somebody's taking advantage of you or you're not happy with, uh, you know, with the bathroom being locked and you have to go to the bathroom and you're at a gas station, you are a prominent athlete and you have to know that everything you do is going to get out in today's era. Uh, there's absolutely no excuse for, for not understanding that. You are always on surveillance. There is always a camera uh, in a in a gas station, a surveillance camera. There's always going to be a camera on the street somewhere. There's always going to be somebody with a phone. You really have to understand who you are and what you do. And you know he's certainly experienced enough and uh, and famous enough to understand that. And uh, so I think in that regard, it's the point. Uh, you know he, he he's even if provoked, he certainly had to understand who he was and what he was doing in that situation. You wrote another thing that was a bit disappointing about the Olympics in terms of the U.S. was Hope Solo, who called Sweden a bunch of cowards after they lost in the quarterfinals. That was that was genuinely your biggest disappointment. Huh? Yeah, that would be well. Just the whole women's team in general would have to be a big disappointment mm. uh, because I, this is the team that won the women's World Cup just uh, you know the year before. I mean, they're America's darlings. I mean, this was this was a team that that you wanted to love. And, and even more than some of the other really good women's soccer teams in the past in this country, this one had a little bit more, it, it felt a little, even if it didn't look like America, because again, it still was very white. Uh, there was nonetheless a feeling they were a little more like America. Uh, you know, Abby Wambach being open about her sexuality, a couple other players also coming out. Uh, players talking about, issues with their own families, you know, not getting along with their parents. It wasn't a really polished team. It had a little bit of chips to it, which I think made it more real and more human. And that's why, anyway, that's why I love that, that team from last year. Uh, and so to then see essentially the same team go to, uh, go to Rio and just fall apart, I, I, yeah, that was a huge disappointment. Uh, you can argue whether or not uh, soccer is necessarily the the sport that you, you know should carry a team through an Olympics. It's about so many other things. Uh, but yeah, that was I think for America a, a huge disappointment. And just quickly on the Olympics, do you think we'll see Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt, despite what they've already said in 2020? I don't think you'll see Phelps. Uh, I don't know if Bolt can keep the same, uh, you know, you know, maintain who he is. Uh, I finally, the, the, the great joy of this Olympics, or one of the great joys for me in this Olympics, was I was finally going to see him run in person. Mm. I actually, in the other two, I had never seen him run. And, uh, you know, I went that night for the for the 100. And is it quick alive? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it's very quick live. But it also was, a, you know, it wasn't as, it wasn't as amazing as it was in Beijing. I mean, obviously, you know, the, that that line between him and the others is a little closer now, and so I don't know. 
I don't know. I would think if there's any way he could still run at a high level, I I got to think he would want to do it. Uh, but I don't know that that you know he will. I, I that's that's a huge guess here. But I, I would hope. I, I I would love to see him run again. I, I don't know. Yeah, fastest to be the fastest man over 16 years would be quite <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, going back to June now and the NBA Finals, Warriors-Cavs, which might as well be the NBA Finals for next year, but we'll uh, hold off on that and the crystal ball. But this year, um, how did LeBron James do what he did and did you find out why? <laughs> he was amazing, uh, especially in those last couple of uh, games. And... I kind of go back to this, uh, much like with the World Series, I didn't do every game, uh, but I, I drove to Cleveland uh, for the for the games in Cleveland uh, would be what it would be three and four, uh, and I, um, I I have this memory and it's just burned in my head. It kind of you know maybe maybe sort of like the Francona thing is burned in my head. This was underneath the stands across the street at the uh, at the arena. And it's a little press conference room that's sort of set up. It's not even really a room. It's just sort of an area under the stands that they put a bunch of uh, curtains around and throw up a platform and, and put some chairs around and call it a press conference room. It was a big area. And after the Warriors, I mean, after the, the Cavaliers had gone down 3-1 in game four, uh, LeBron came in with a couple teammates, and I don't even remember who they were. Uh, I, I think Kyrie Irving was one of them, but the look on his, their faces was just devastation. And the look on his face was just devastation. And yet he's still talking about, we got to we gotta get back out there. we got to do this again. I, I remember he was wearing a cardigan sweater. It was a very odd look. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just that, that thought right there that he had come back. He had worked so hard, you know, hard for Cleveland. He had put so much into this Cleveland thing. And after coming close and losing in the year before, now they really weren't going to win this time either, and they had their full complement. And it just it, it looked it looked like it devastated him. So whatever happened after that internally, and there's been a lot written about it, sort of the you know the you know, the talks that he had with teammates and the things that were done afterward, uh, you know, were born out of that moment. And to just sort of see that there. I think, gosh, you know, how do you get the determination to pull back up and go out there and play at the level that he played? I mean, he was just fantastic in those last couple of games, and that's, you know, that's what I'll always probably remember about about the, you know, this series and this finals was was that that dejection in LeBron, and then what came after that, and and how they was able to pull the Warriors back, Everything. I mean the uh, the Cavaliers back. Everything seems to be uh, solved these days with a WhatsApp group. I always hear the story of the team that had the WhatsApp group and LeBron was sending messages. But I also found a re- J.R. Smith fascinating because he comes to Cleveland. He's known as a party boy in New York and, um, you know, punching people in the face in pizza stores. And LeBron kind of took him under his wing. And we've seen this season LeBron and J.R. Smith have been kind of tied together. They've been to Ohio State games, India- uh, uh, Indians games. And J.R. Smith comes to Cleveland and he plays really well. The finals doesn't shoot the ball very well until game seven in the second half. And in his press conference, he completely breaks down, starts crying, and then he goes to Vegas and takes his shirt off. Were you at the press conference, and, and what did you make of J.R. Smith's kind of conversion from that party boy to choir boy? 
Yeah, no, because I, I wasn't at uh, I, I wasn't at the games in Oakland, so I, course, I was yeah. not at that press conference. But yeah, it's fascinating. And you know, going back to that game seven, one of the surreal moments of game seven. I'm talking about baseball now. I'm sorry that the game seven of the Indian series. Uh, you know, LeBron had brought the whole Warriors team to that game, and they were all in a suite. And they, it was this gigantic scoreboard behind the left field uh, stands. You may have seen it on TV in, in Cleveland at the baseball stadium. I mean, huge. It's the entire length of the, the, the maybe the biggest sport. I don't know. Uh, and, and after that home run, it's gone over the fence. and Everybody's going nuts. They show the war, the uh, the Cavaliers in that box, and there's, there's LeBron going nuts, and the fans see it, and they go nuts. And then you see J.R. Smith, and he rips his shirt off again. You know, and, all, you know, and 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 he's going crazy. And it and it's just you know he has these moments of just unrestrained joy and yeah i'm i'm sure there's certainly an element of uh, you know a lack of maturity there and it, and it's certainly got to be frustrating for those you know who have to play you know whether coach whether they coach or whatever but i think that there's something to be said for an athlete today who isn't that corporate who can just still be himself and it's a league where everybody is so much a brand uh, even the Warriors have a certain uniqueness to them on, on many levels at each player. There's still a, a sort of sense of decorum about him. There's nothing with him. With this guy, it's just, you, just, you see who he is. He just throws it all out there. And I, I, I think that was a part of why the, absolutely a part of why the Cavaliers were able to survive this, why they were able to get through it. Yeah, he didn't shoot well, but, you know, sometimes you need a guy like that. Sometimes you need that one player. I mean, Draymond Green in some ways is that player for the Warriors, uh, you know, and it actually came to hurt them in that finals. But, you know, with Smith, absolutely. He is that guy that just, you know, you need him sometimes. You need that person that nobody can control because everybody else has been to tighten up a little bit. I think people have been a bit unfair with the Cavs because there's so many there were so many conversations after the series was over about the Warriors and what they could have achieved and, and how they blew the lead. And I could easily ask you now, would the Warriors have won game five if Draymond wasn't suspended? But I'm going to ask you, if the Cavs hadn't have changed coaches from David Black to Tyron Lue, do you think they would have gone this far? I mean, Lee Jenkins wrote a piece in SI when LeBron won Sports Person of the Year about how Tyron Lue was really challenging LeBron in Game 7, really you know, calling him out in timeout, saying you've got to be better for us. And LeBron was seemingly really annoyed about this at halftime. But Lou challenged him, and that's what Le- LeBron wanted someone to do, right? So what do you make of that coaching change, and did it have a, a huge impact? Yeah, that, by the way, that was a great piece. And uh, I actually remember I te- as soon as I finished it, I texted Lee to tell him so many things I, I learned in that story. Uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, I... I think sometimes you have to, especially in the NBA, it really seems like a sport where once you stop listening to a coach, you have to change the coach, uh, and, and people will eventually always stop listening. I guess Phil Jackson may have been one of the few who could actually get around that, but, but not many can. There comes a point where everyone tunes, tunes out the coach, and you, you know, it was, it was sad to see Black uh, get tuned out like that because I, I, I've always found him very interesting. I was kind of excited to have that he was going to get a shot in the States with, it, with a great team like the Cavs. Uh, but, yeah, I thought Lou did a wonderful job, uh, and they did. They were paying attention. And, yeah, he probably was a piece of what got them through. You know, there was something else that really came up in that finals. I touched on it a little bit, probably not as much, maybe because I couldn't nail it down. 
but I, I, I really feel that Steph Curry was not himself through a lot of the playoffs, and some of that obviously came in the injury early on. Uh, but once he was healthy again, he still wasn't the same, and he was not mm. the same in, in a couple of those games uh, in the finals, even when they were up 3-1. And yeah, he, he did he did shoot very well in seven, but he was distracted. And he the one perhaps great weakness of of Curry is that he sometimes loses concentration, uh, that he is affected by so many things around him. And I think he he had a house full of people, and uh, everyone was kind of you know sort of hanging on him and, you know, Steph, Steph, you know, take care of me, get tickets, Steph, you know. And, and there's a part, a part of him, and I, and I want to talk with uh, with the shooting coach of the Warriors about this right uh, during the uh, final, someone I know you've spoken to as well. And, uh, you know, he said, look, Steph to please it. Steph has to please everybody. And for an MVP, that's very unusual. For a guy at that level, uh, I, I mean, the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan, they'll, They'll cut everybody out. I mean, you know, Jordan was famous for just, you know, he'll go get another hotel on the road or whatever. You know, he, he, didn't, get, he didn't get suffer anybody. Uh, but Curry can't. And that, that's what makes him unique as a person. He's very interesting and probably why his personalities allowed them to introduce Kevin Durant and, and, and you know, have all the superstars. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, it is the one thing that hurt them when they needed him the most is that ability to, to not fully be there mentally. Uh, and it's it's kind of a, a fascinating look at a, at a fantastic player. And, I mean, obviously this was supposed to be the year in the finals of, of Steph Curry, and it didn't wind up that way. But I think a lot of it had to do with everything that was going on around him, and he just couldn't shut it all out. We're talking to Les Carpenter of The Guardian. Before we get to the Super Bowl from last season between the Denver Broncos and the Carolina Panthers, who both have failed to make the playoffs this season, I want to tell you about our friends over at redzonesports.com. The U.S. Sports Podcast is sponsored by redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports, as well as the best odds on U.S. sports, money can't buy prize promotions, and their very own cheerleading squad. You can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. That's code USSP. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. Just head to redzonesports.com, top right-hand corner, register and enter deposit code USSP and double your stake money. So, back to Les. I could spend hours talking to you about that. Um, I'm going to go to the next sport before we uh, run over. The Super Bowl feels like it was a long time ago because we're actually closing in on, on this year's Super Bowl. Uh, but the Broncos and the Panthers, first of all, kind of taking it forward a little bit, did you expect Carolina to be this bad this year? No. No, I didn't. Uh, I thought Carolina would be pretty good for a couple of years. You, you know, you kind of wondered with them letting Josh Norman go so quickly, geez, that a smart move. But, you know, in the NFL, yes, great players matter. Uh, but unless it's a quarterback, you usually can do things to cover up for that. Uh, you know, I it's a you know, defense is a team thing. So, no, I didn't think losing Josh Norman and just you know the fact that the offense would go kind of the way that it has, you know, all those things would would, would matter. No, I I really felt that this was going to be a pretty good team for a couple of years. Like we were going to see a you know a couple of good Carolina Seattle battles going forward in the NFC for maybe uh, you know a Russell Wilson Cam Newton kind of thing for for a little while longer. Uh, but it goes fast in the NFL, and, you know, they have this phrase, I've always hated it, Super Bowl hangover. 
Uh, and it, it, it often refers to that team that went to the Super Bowl and then lost uh, and, and sort of then comes back, and it's just not the same. And in a few cases, the team that wins it, I think, I think the Saints perhaps celebrated their Super Bowl too long and, and may have lost the window the next year. But, you know, some teams definitely that lose the Super Bowl don't recover quite as well. I, and I don't know why, because I, I, I think the Panthers have a great coach. I, re- I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think you know Cam Newton is a is a fantastic player. Uh, I, you know, I think it's uh, you know they should have a lot of pieces there, and it just it has not worked out. It's interesting. Most of the talk before Super Bowl Fifty was about Peyton Manning uh, going out. Was he going to win a second one? What did he deserve to be there? Could Brock Osweiler have taken that team to the Super Bowl? Um, what did you want to get out of the? Did you want to go overboard on Manning, or was it more about the Broncos' defense? Because the media coverage on Peyton was massive that week. Yeah, it really was, and I actually stayed away from a lot of it until the very end of the game, actually. Uh, and, and spent more of my time writing about San Francisco and other things. I, I actually spent an entire day on uh, Portrayal Hill where O.J. Simpson grew up, just sort of writing about the community that had changed since, uh, since O.J. Um, had lived there. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I, I don't think, first of all, I don't think Brock Osweiler could have taken the Broncos to the Super Bowl. It's highly obvious now watching Brock Osweiler play. I, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he would have. Uh, you know, yes, it was a great defense. Peyton Manning didn't have a great year, uh, but he did enough in those big games. Uh, I did the playoff game that uh, that they had against uh, Pittsburgh, so the divisional series game, uh, divisional uh, round game, and there was a moment. It was kind of an odd thing, but it, but the players remembered it, and it meant something to them. Late in the game, he comes out in the huddle after a timeout, and he's still wearing his jacket. You know, like he still got the big coat over his shoulder. No one really saw it on TV. But I remember I was talking to several players about it. And it was sort of, the guys were all sort of looking at him like, what are you doing? And there was a moment of levity, much the way that, uh, uh, if you remember the Super Bowl with uh, many years ago, San Francisco with Joe Montana. You know, they, they were in Miami. I think they were playing Cincinnati. And it's late in the game. They're driving down the field. And everybody's fancy. He gets in a huddle. And he looks over at the stands and says, hey, look, there's John Candy. And everybody looks over and, <laughs> You know, I thought that that had that, you know, Manning had that ability to be able to do those things. He had the ability to lead the guys through this stuff. Uh, it obviously was not the Peyton Manning of old. He wasn't going to be great. The Bronco offense was, was solid but not spectacular. Uh, but it, it didn't have to be. All they had to do was just be able to be led. And, and he did that. Uh, I don't think Osweiler would have gotten him through. So, yeah, I think a lot of that still goes on Peyton Manning's shoulders. Uh, but so much I thought going into that Super Bowl too was about Cam Newton, and there was so much criticism of Newton, and, and a lot of it was, uh, you know, it was, it was really disturbing how a lot of it was was racially driven, uh, and, and just kind of sad too. It really, uh, the night before the Super Bowl, there was an awards banquet. Obviously, he couldn't be there, but uh, they uh, they named him the MVP and whatnot, and they gave him all these uh, you know awards. And so his father took him. And I remember I, I, I sought his father out in this, uh, this, this theater in San Francisco under the stands afterward. And we talked for a few minutes. And uh, I think there was just this enormous pride in his father of what his son had accomplished. And yet through that pride, we're still talking about the criticism that he took and, and the racism that was behind that. And I think there was kind of a sadness in uh, at knowing, oh, that's just kind of the way it is. And, you know, we have to get through that and we move on. But, you know, there was sort of this, this, 
this kind of emptiness in in that regard too. And and, and I I felt maybe I overperceived that too much, but that's that's sort of what I took from it. And I I just you kind of even thinking back to the Super Bowl now and the reaction that came to, to, to Newton after the in that game. And I was just going to ask you that. that. I was just going to yeah, ask that because I think a lot of people forgot was, about that. Yeah, and I was not in that press conference. I was chasing Manning. I, uh, Brian Graham, uh, our other writer who was there, was uh, was in that and uh, followed him. And, I, and, it, and it, I remember Brian was kind of sitting there thinking afterward, wow, you know, this is, I think Brian ultimately, you know, felt, felt badly for Cam and felt like there's just no winning for this guy. And I, and I would agree. I just, you know, no matter what he does, if he's, if he if he smiled and acted and was polite after the game, then everyone said that, well, gosh, he didn't care. And if he's upset and sad, then oh, he's salt. And there's there it, it it's terrible that that's what happened. And you know, I think it says something that still with with great black athletes in this country, there's still a uh, a judgment that you know they just can't win. And and it's uh, I I kind of hope with this activism we're seeing with guys like LeBron speaking out, Carmelo Anthony and, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and different athletes finally having their voice, Richard Sherman, that, that maybe we, we kind of move forward. I thought we had, and, you know, I, more than anything, I think last year's Super Bowl said to me we had, and that, that kind of clouds it more than, than the, than the game itself. That's interesting. Like Peyton Manning, um, another guy who's bowed out in 2016, call him a guy, he's an old man, Vin Scully. Um, I think this is the last of the one-man booths and, and a guy who won't scream and in fact will quiet down and let the noise do the talking of the crowd and all the sights you see around the spring training games. I remember Vin calling games like that, the kids in the, in the, uh, in the stands licking an ice cream and he just kind of does a little commentary about what he's seeing. And it's so great to listen to and Dodger fans take their radio to the, the ballpark through history. What are your memories of Vin Scully? And do you think we've seen the last of this kind of broadcaster? Oh, well, I, you know, he was the last of that kind of broadcaster, first of all. I mean, nobody else was tweeting a one-man booth. Um, but, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, so Vince Scully is the, the soundtrack of my life. I, the great joy in, my, in, in adulthood was when I could finally buy a Major League Baseball package on DirecTV and, and watch every Dodger game, and, uh, and, and I still do uh, to this day. I, uh, now, <laughs> it was easier when I was, uh, it was living in Seattle at the time, and at least the games were in the same time zone. Uh, you know, now I live on the East Coast, and the games come on at 10 o'clock every night. But, yeah, I, you know, then this is a, the, the end of this baseball season was very hard for me watching the last night of Vince Scully. And I actually went and turned my DVR on several times. And I have several of those Dodger games in the last week of the season uh, on my DVR. That I guess I, I, I need to go sit and watch again just to listen. Because it's at 99%. We're not going to be able to record anything else. Uh, but just to, uh, yeah, just to, just to hear it again. Uh, it was just such a way that he could describe a game, that he could make you feel like you were there. The stories he would tell were unbelievable. And, yeah, he had a group of people sitting in the box with him that would give him these stories. He didn't go look them up himself. But nobody could tell him. I, I, I just go, go get on, uh, I, just go Google him and just watch some of them. I, I, you know, the story about Madison Bumgarner, the giant pitcher, killing a rattlesnake and finding, a, a, you know, two baby bunnies in there and his wife uh, raising one of the baby bunnies that, that was found in the rattlesnake. I mean, all these, uh, 
these stories that they could just tell and tell and tell. And I was having this conversation with someone a, a couple of nights ago. They had the perfect ending for him. He had already decided he was not going to go into the postseason because he didn't want to sit around and say goodbye after every game, not sure if there was going to be a game the next night or not. Uh, so he wanted to end at the end of the season. And the Dodgers finished their home season. He was mostly only doing home games. Uh, they ended their home season, uh, you know, a, a week before the end of the year. Mm. And it happened to be the game that they clinched the division. And With Charlie the walk-off. <laughs> barely, yeah, a barely used backup infielder. It's a walk-off home run in the 10th inning to win the game. <laughs> and Vince Hall is absolutely perfect. And there's sort of the celebration on the field, and the celebration on the field is pointed up to the press box to Vince Gulley, and everybody waves to him, and he waves back, and there's this moment in any, you know, there's a recording he had made of himself singing the wind beneath my wings to his wife, and they played it on the floor. People are literally crying. You can see him in the stands. And that was perfect. It should have ended there, but he came back, and he did the, uh, he did the end of the season in San Francisco. He did the last game of the season that they played in San Francisco. And it just was too much of a celebration of then. Uh, the game didn't mean anything, so it didn't have the same kind of, kind of edge to it. Uh, you know, and it just, the whole thing just didn't feel right. Uh, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't the same. And I kind of wish that he could have just ended it with that Charlie Culberson walk-off because it was perfect. Because there were so many, th- so many times Ben would just sum something up and you just, you couldn't do any better with it. And I wish it had ended like that. I loved uh, how every, every, uh, every batter came to the plate at the final home game and just saluted him, took the hat off and pointed towards Vin, the, the, the booth as well. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, and here's the interesting thing in all of that. Uh, you know, the, the broadcaster is generally known among the players. I mean, he travels with the players. He's close, you know, some level close to the, the guys. The, the broadcast team's on the same plane. I mean, but Vince Scully didn't travel very much in the last several years. He only went to the home. He only did home games. And he, you know, in his late 80s, uh, he didn't really know the players. Uh, it's not like he was chummy with those guys. They barely knew him. He knew the guy from the 70s and the 80s, and even the 90s and 60s. You know, I, I, Sandy Koufax was the one. They, they knew him well. But the guys later in, in, in more recent years, I think they barely knew him at all. Uh, and there was, as money became an issue, I've had a couple guys tell me this, that there was a resentment on some of the Dodger teams in the 90s because Scully was not a homer. This was what made him great. He didn't cheer for the team. He didn't yell. You know, the guys on the on the opposing team were just as interesting as the Dodgers. He told the same stories about them that he told about the Dodger players. He was kind of the last of the guy who wasn't a total shill. Uh, and so, you know, he he had this this detachment from the players, and he might talk about a contract or something, and players got a little upset about it. And I, I've heard several players kind of resented him, and, uh, especially in the 90s. Uh, you know, maybe later on, you know, you just you become so iconic that that, that that didn't matter as much anymore. Money became bigger. But when money was still starting to become an issue, uh, I know Mike Piazza, for instance, uh, is kind of a long famous feud. It, it, you can't stand him because he feels that Scully turns fans against him in his contract dispute. I, I, I think that's perhaps a little silly, but, you know, that's how we felt. And I think that came from a feeling on the team that other players felt that way too. But to have the same job for 60-plus years and one that takes – you know, a lot of research, preparation, energy. How can you possibly follow that? I mean, excuse me if it's already been announced, but obviously the Road Dodgers broadcast, Oral Hershiser is one of the guys that does that. How are they going to possibly go on after Vince Scully's retired? 
Well, as they will. I mean, they've, uh, you know, they, they have a good group. Uh, you know, Charlie Steiner, who's long been on uh, television and, you know, is on ESPN for several years as an anchor and did some Yankee games for years, is, is one of the broadcasters. They have a, a new guy. He's kind of like the, the next, may, maybe they're sort of almost portraying him too much as the next Scully. Uh, a guy in his 20s who's going to take over kind of the, that lead TV role. Um, but it won't be the same. It'll be a broadcast booth with, with athletes and an announcer. It'll be Oral Hershiser and, and Nomar Garcia Par along with another, you know, an announcer. Uh, it, it won't be the same. It won't have the same storytelling tone to it. But you know what? Today's announcers don't do that. Today's announcers don't, can't tell stories. It's just not the way they are. It's not the way they were raised in the business. They all sound alike, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, so I, I, I feel that long term, you know, the Dodgers will be fine. The broadcast will be fine. It'll just be different. Uh, but you couldn't hold on to the old forever. It, life was going to change and, you know, move on. And, you know, Scully was wonderful. It was great. I, I absolutely love listening to the soundtrack of my life. But, you know, life goes on. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I would hate for him to not – I think this is what Scully felt, too. I've, I've heard him talk about it. He would have hated to have lost it. Yeah, I mean, as a guy who did every inning of every game at home, uh, you know, he'd occasionally get something wrong because he was talking so much. It wasn't there wasn't someone else to pick up the slack. He he might get a name wrong here or there, or get a count wrong here or there, but a lot of times he corrected. He still is very much at the top of his game. There's a lot of old announcers. You can hear him, and it's just you cringe and get everything wrong. I I really think he did not want to be that guy. He didn't want to slip. And, you know, I agree. I don't think I would have wanted to watch a diminished Ben Scully. I mean, well, wouldn't it be 94 and, you know, sort of just, just mumbling into the microphone? I wouldn't want to have heard that. I, I like that strong voice that, that, that went out on, on top. And so maybe this was the right time. Yeah, and with 365 days in a year, there's going to be some negative. There's going to be a tragedy or two. And death of Muhammad Ali was certainly one of the biggest we've ever seen in sports. Um, it's really interesting, and I wanted to ask you this first, how much of an impact his death do you think has had on current athletes? When you look at what happened at the ESPYs with Colin Kaepernick, what do you think about that? And, and, and certainly younger athletes, African-Americans. Oh, yeah, I think it definitely had an impact, uh, without a doubt. Um, he... Les, can I just yeah, uh, I interrupt you there? Sorry. I've just seen breaking news. Craig Sager has died at the age of 65. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Wow. wow. That's, that's uh, not yeah. good. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's very sad. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I never really dealt with him a lot, but obviously over the years, I mean, I, I, you know, I've watched him, and uh, he's, uh, you know, it's, uh, he really mastered that sideline interview the way that, Few people could. I, it, it's a horrible experience, I think, watching the sideline interview. I, I just, I, I, I just wish that wouldn't be there. I, 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 especially that in-game coach interview. It's terribly uncomfortable. And he always handled that so well, and kind of made it fun, and he kind of made it different. And you know, maybe because he wore the silly coats and and and, and things like that. I, I, I think that kind of, you know, they kind of helped the experience. Uh, but generally, I wish that would just go away. And, you know, he was the one person who could really make that thing come alive. And 
that interaction, he would have a Popovich. And you saw the genuine affection that a lot of the athletes had, uh, especially in the NBA when he was uh, when he was going through those uh, the, the last few months of the season, and everyone knew that probably the end was near. Uh, so yeah, that that that's very sad. Very sad. He was um, he was actually I was in Go- uh, for the Golden State. I was in San Fran in March, and he was doing one of the games. And I remember. There was a couple of journalists there. There was quite a lot of journalists, actually, that had kind of just come to watch the Warriors. And Sega was doing one of the games. And so many people were going up to him, taking photos. And I kind of thought it was inappropriate. I don't want to get on high horse because he was uh, he's just going back into treatment at that time. But you could see the energy still. And everyone was just kind of walking around him as if he was a god. And I think, you know, he went all around the globe. People knew who he was. Well, that energy was unbelievable uh, to, to go through what he was going through and be able to sit there and, and, and carry that same enthusiasm. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about Lee Jenkins earlier and the story that he wrote on LeBron. I mean, he wrote a wonderful piece about Craig Sager and, and the treatments he was going through and, and spent a day with him while he was doing that. And just the amount of effort it took each time to get out to that arena to do a game, you know, to just, you know, do what he did – and then go straight back into treatments again and then get himself ready to go out to an arena again in another city to go do a game. I mean, it's unbelievable. And you talk about inspiring. Absolutely, that's inspiring. Uh, it's it, it, Yeah, it was really hard to watch him go through that fight from afar through television. And yet, I think he did it in such a way that people didn't really put a lot of thought into, my God, what's he doing here? How is he, you know, you just didn't even feel like you were watching him die even though technically you really were. And, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's hard. I think we probably knew this was all coming. I, you know, one of the great little, uh, little memories of him uh, that people probably forget is he was, uh, he was on the field, I believe, the first person to come up to Hank Aaron after he hit the 714th home run to break, uh, or 715th home run to break the Bruce record back in 1974. Yeah. Uh, there, you, know, you see the picture, he's wearing a flashy sport coat, and he's got a microphone right up there uh, interviewing Hank Aaron, uh, obviously at a very early point in his career. but uh, he yeah, got, what, uh, Somehow he got on the field. I remember Dan Patrick told that story a couple of times, because he was very young at the time, right? Yeah, but, you know, sort of, and you kind of think about it, that, yeah, before that point, if you ever go back and watch great bullets in sports uh, in the 60s or whatnot, you know, nobody's running out onto the field to do interviews. I mean, uh, uh, there's a shot from Roger Maris sitting in the home run to break Babe Ruth's record in the 61st home run. He just ran around the bases, he slapped by a handful of players and ran the dugout. Uh, you know, no, there was no celebrations or ceremonies. I mean, I think that was very, you know, I, I, I don't. I'd have to go back and look at this, but I have to think that that was about the first of one of those in the middle of a game, stop everything and have a big ceremony moment. And yeah, I mean, he kind of just bowled his way in there and ran up and started interviewing. <laughs> it was a bold move, but you know, my gosh, what a great move! Yeah, I think we have to celebrate that. I mean, our thoughts are certainly with Craig Sager's family at the moment and quite eerie that I asked you about Muhammad Ali as well. Um, just wanted to get back to that question of how much you think Ali's death has impacted young African-American athletes. Yeah, you know, I didn't think about it as much because, of course, Ali was a presence in my life. I'm, I'm not a 25-year-old. So, you know, I, I, in fact, I remember Ali fighting uh, someone when I was a child. Uh, towards the end of his career, and then I, I 
there was a, a period in the 1980s, a lot of people don't seem to remember this, where he actually was a, was a pitch man for uh, a magazine called Inside Sports. And he would always be sitting kind of, you know, talking about it. But he, he could already see the, you know, that he was the effects of the party that were starting to really kick in. And, he, you know, he was starting to really, you know, he wasn't able to, to necessarily, you know, speak very clearly. Uh, and then a couple of times I had seen him in person at, at, at events. And uh, it was always kind of one of these moments where just everything just sort of stops and, and the, everything in the room stops and there's Ali. Uh, so to me, it always seemed like everybody, you know, always knew who he stood for and who he was. But, yeah, it really hit me this summer, and I can't remember who the athlete was I was speaking to. Uh, and they started talking about what Ali meant to them and how under, learning about Ali had sort of changed their life and their outlook. And it, it's driving me nuts that I can't remember who was who said this. But I was like, my gosh, I guess it's really right. There's a whole generation of athletes and just people in general that have no idea what Ali went through. Mm. and the struggles and the fact that this is a guy who at the height of his career uh, at the moment when he was you know you know imagine Floyd Mayweather stepping away from boxing for several years because you know they won't let him fight because you know for for a reason that for a stand that he took and Ali stand against going being drafted and going to the war uh you know was, was you know it was enormous and and to, you know to to stand for for rights of black Americans, uh, you know, was at a time when, when people just still weren't doing that, uh, you know, it was immense. Uh, and I just assumed that everybody always knew that story. And now there's now a generation that's learning that and is moved by it. And it's interesting that maybe their passion is more intense now than, say, athletes from 10, 15, 20 years ago, back in the days when Michael Jordan would say things like, well, you know, Republicans buy Nikes too, uh, you know, that, that maybe they were somewhat sort of jaded uh, because they knew the story and they had grown up with it and it didn't necessarily move them the way that, that it does athletes today. Uh, yeah, I think you've really hit on something there. I, without a doubt, I think the Ollie story is a motivation for younger, for younger athletes that don't under, you know, that didn't know. Four quick ones uh, before I let you go. Um, you texted Lee Jenkins to say great stuff on the Sports Person of the Year piece, but do you agree with Lee Jenkins and Co? Do you think LeBron James was the Sports Person of the Year, or would you have given it to someone else? I personally would have given it to Vince Scully. <laughs> no, no, you can give it to Vince Scully. That, that's. Uh, <laughs> As a as a long uh, as a long listener of his from from childhood, I I love that sentiment. But now, I, I mean, think about what Cleveland winning did. Uh, you know, that's a city that had, had, had. We talk about the Cubs in Chicago, but Cleveland won nothing. Cleveland was the the everybody's loser city, and uh, for LeBron to go home and finally win. Uh, to pull his team through that final, the way that he played, the way we were talking earlier about this, the way he just sort of put that all on his back. And absolutely, uh, LeBron is uh, the sportsman of the year. Uh, you know, I thought a little bit, could you give it to, to uh, like a Katie Ledecky or a Simone Biles or, or even a Michael Phelps? I'm not sure that all three of them had such iconic Olympics that I, that I feel like you couldn't separate one of them out. Uh, and and then the only other person you know, I think I could think of would be the Cubs themselves. 
Uh, I mean, the Red Sox feel... won it. The Red Sox won it when they won the title in 04. And the Cubs kind of stretched over more of 2016. Like, the, obviously, the Cleveland story is fascinating. 1964, the last time they won a uh, championship, that the city. But if the Red Sox won it, why wouldn't the Cubs have won it? And LeBron's already won it already when he was in Miami. Well, you think, too, the Red Sox, you know, the, the Red Sox were done in the ALCS that year. Mm. I, I mean, they were, they were about to be swept. And, and came back and then won. And, you know, I think that there was more emotion going through that. Plus, the country's already seen the Red Sox do it. Uh, I, I still think that, that Cleveland itself just getting a title, LeBron going home to do it, uh, finally doing it uh, in Cleveland, and the way that he carried them through that, that those last couple games. I, I just, I, to me, I, I really didn't feel like there was a great second choice. Uh, even though there were some good picks for say, that you could have argued very well, uh, I just still thought you know, it was LeBron. This might have the same answer, but what was your surprise of the year? Huh. Uh, surprise of the year. Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the Indians getting to the World Series was a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I yeah, I did not. I did not see that one coming. Uh, Leicester City, Les, give some love for Leicester City. I know they're not an American team. Exactly. Well, of course, we're talking American sports. But, yeah, you know, yes, it was a surprise that Cleveland won. Uh, I'm talking about the the Cavaliers over the Warriors. I mean, given what the Warriors have been that year. But I think you get into a finals, things grind out, and certainly those teams were, were, were obviously the two best in the NBA. The Indians really kind of had to make a run to get to the playoffs, to get to the World Series. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, without you know, looking at it too deeply beyond that, I, I, I'd say that was as, as good a surprise as any. On a personal note, what was your favorite story to write? And then there's a lot of them. There were a lot of them. Uh, I think my favorite story at The Guardian, probably, you know, something we hadn't talked about. Uh, and it was... Uh, it was looking. This all really opened my eyes to something. I, I we had talked to, actually going back to the women's uh, national soccer team as far back as the World Cup last year. Sort of this team is very white. Is it really representing who we are as a country? And uh, you know, at the time, I didn't just want to write something quick because I felt like that would, you know, it was almost sort of a cheap shot. And there were some cheap shots taken. I, I, wanted, I felt like there had to be a deeper stuff story to kind of kind of look into here so over the next several months I, I i kind of talked to people at different places and sat down and you know kind of tried to figure out you know what's going on with soccer in this country and really got a, an understanding of just how hard it is for non-white kids in america to break into soccer to be able to play at these elite club levels that and it, yeah i, I live in a washington dc area it's a perfect example here i mean there's there's local teams that kids can come and play for, but you, your parents might have to pay like $10,000 a year when you consider the travel cost, cost of playing for the team and everything else. I mean, ultimately, it has become a rich kid sport in America. Uh, it is very hard for the non-white kids or for the poorer kids in America to break through. And when you think of the natural styles of play that you see in the rest of the world that really aren't translating to the American teams because are so regimented here, I think it's because the kids that play that kind of soccer – they're not seen. They're playing, you know, on parks and in, you know, in Spanish-speaking neighborhoods in, uh, you know, different cities in the U.S. And no one's ever finding them because they're not making their way to these elite teams. 
because the families don't have the money. They, just, they can't. They can't afford to 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 to, to spend five thousand dollars to get the kid into soccer. And so, I think that was perhaps the story that that moved me the most and, and meant the most to me, uh, because I realized that I was stumbling into something that really hadn't been talked about a lot, and yet I think a lot of people knew existed. It was a little new to me. My kids aren't that age yet, and, uh, and they don't play soccer, but I, you know, I kind of, you know, I've, it, it really opened my eyes, and I, it was something that over and over again I, I've, I've heard from people. It's like, thank God someone's talking about this finally. Thank God there's a story about this. Thank God someone put into words what we've been feeling for years. So I think that would probably be my favorite story. Yeah, it was a really good read. I mean, it did really well, deservedly so. Um, interesting that you bring that up. Uh, last one, I know with the world of hot takes now, and you've got to have a hot take. What do you uh, do? You have a bold prediction for twenty seventeen? A bold prediction uh, beyond the fact that we, 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 this, this came up in our uh, basketball roundtable before the, the start of the NBA season. What was our bold prediction? And I had to think of it for a second. I thought, well, of course. Kobe will want to come back. Uh, <laughs> Play for the Warriors. So, I put that in there that Kobe will be itching to come back. So maybe that will be my bold prediction. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, probably as good a one. I, I, I'd like to make a prediction about the Super Bowl because I, I mm. really don't know where things are going to you know, shake out. No one does. I still think that, yeah, exactly. It's not like last year. I really, really feel like we haven't heard the end of the Cowboy quarterback situation. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Jones I mean, won't just, Jerry yeah. Jones will not put a stop to it. That's the problem. Well, of course not. And so uh I, I think a bold prediction is is that we will see uh Cowboy quarterback chaos somewhere <laughs> before the the uh we get too far into the playoffs and that the Super Bowl team will not be the Cowboys even though you know everything so far has pointed to the fact that they will be the Super Bowl team, so maybe that's my other big bowl prediction for right now. Do we see Tony Romo in the playoffs? You know, I, I, I look. This is just a gut. This is there. There is. I I have not spoken to anyone. I have no inside analysis on this. I don't want to portray myself as having that right on this. Uh, but my guess would be yes. <laughs> Just because it's the Cowboys and the personalities involved and everything else, and that's terrible because Zach Prescott's played wonderfully this year. Um, and, again, I don't want to say that I have some kind of insight to this because I don't. I'm just making an educated guess because of us talking. Uh, Dak Prescott I, uh, fell into Jerry Jones's hands. He should be praising him, bowing down to him, but yet he's still allowing the speculation to stay there. Well, I mean, that's that's partially just how Jerry Jones operates, and it's kind of funny. I mean, what other team owner has a press conference after every game in the locker room? Not even general managers today. I know he's the general manager of the team as well as the owner, but, I mean, most general managers don't have a press conference in the locker room after the game. In fact, most general managers barely speak during the season. Uh, and, uh, you know, and yet here's Jerry Jones. I mean, you, it, it's it's always funny to be around the Cowboys. Uh, because it's just a little different for them than it is for everybody else. And so, yeah, after the game, they bring in, you know, Jason Garrett, and they bring into an interview room, uh, you know, to, you know, whoever the quarterback is, and it may be a star player also. And then somewhere, usually it's in the locker room, there's a Jerry Jones impromptu press conference. And, you know, you can't miss it because he'll say something. And it's, uh, it's just different than all the other teams. And so that's why when he asked me that question, I, I kind of I kind of have to say, yeah, I think I think we might see Tony Romo just because it's the Cowboys. 
Well, Happy New Year. Uh, you had a great 2016, and uh, thanks for jumping onto the pod. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, 2016 was wonderful, wasn't it? And uh, We'll see what uh, 2017 brings. Thanks to Les, and thanks to you for supporting this podcast in 2016. Send me your best sporting moments of this year on Twitter. I'm at Max underscore Whittle. You can also follow and comment on the US Sports Podcast official page at Audio Boom. And please subscribe and leave a review if you'd be so kind on iTunes. I wish everyone out there a happy new year. A quick reminder that you make resolutions at your own peril. The NBA is coming to London in January and it's playoff time in the NFL very soon. So busy times. I look forward to the next time. Until then, enjoy the games. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.